So let's pray, and then we'll get right into this subject and topic. Heavenly Father, you are a good God who desires always to show loving kindness to his people. I pray, Father, that your people would hear that loving kindness and that we would be drawn to you through your word, that your Holy Spirit would entice and invite us into deeper relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that I would not be an impediment to that, that I would be merely a vessel of your words. In your name, amen. So, as I said, I love scripture, and I really enjoy, basically, I made a deal with God when I was in sixth grade, that if I could win the Presidential Physical Fitness Award, it was a really big deal for me. Um, I would read a chapter of the Bible a day, uh, which I've mostly kept to that, and I'm 52 years old now. Um, so you, you read through the Bible a lot in that time frame. I tell you what, in middle school, the Song of Solomon was very interesting. <laughs> I want to give you a context for Matthew 25. So you've got to always have a context. And if you know anything about me, whenever I, I talk, I want to give you a context. So Matthew 25 is Jesus talking primarily to his disciples. They are entering Jerusalem. As far as calendar-wise, we're about two days away from his crucifixion. He's doing this on the Mount of Olives, which is about, it's a high point east of Jerusalem. So if you're on this ridge, which could be, depending on where you're at, about two to 23, 2400 feet above sea level, you're looking down into Jerusalem. In fact, he can see the temple from the top of where he's at. And he's there preaching and teaching with his disciples. He's telling them about basically what to expect. Things are going to get tough. And if you look earlier in the passage, in, in basically prior to Matthew 25, Matthew 24, you're seeing this language about the fig tree, the end. No one knows when the hour is going to come, when the final day of judgment is going to come. In fact, when I was talking with um, Kelly about what should be the uh, art for the, uh, the bulletin this morning, I was thinking Johnny Cash and when the man comes around. Um, I actually listened to that in preparation for this sermon. It's a, it's, there's deep theology in that song. So anyway, that's the context. Jesus is looking at his death. He's two days away. And he wants to leave his disciples, these close ones of his, with some words of comfort. But they don't always sound very comforting. So the story is a story of a king who is essentially going on a journey. So I want to pull this apart almost word by word because everything in here is so, I think, good and worthy of chewing on. So I'm just going to take you from the story and walk you through it. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven going to be like? So you got the parable of the ten virgins with the lamps and getting ready and being prepared, who's smart, who's not. And then you've got this parable right on the edge of that, the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Let's stop there. So, who does the calling? 
the king, the master, does the calling. He calls his servants to him. Another way to think of that word servant is slave. These are people who are subject to the king. They are in his service, and he calls them. There's no question about who comes. They come because the king is called. So the, the king calls, the servants come, and he entrusts to them his property. Whose property? It's his. He didn't get it from somebody else. It's his property. To one he gives five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. So what does that tell us about this king? This king knows his people. Like a good employer, he knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. He knows who's good with big projects with lots of things going on. He knows who's good with smaller projects. He gives them according to their ability because the king knows his people. Now, I am a little bit of a Bible nerd, like I've already said. And so what's a talent? So I bet you've never figured or looked into this before. But a talent actually weighs, it's a, a monetary unit that weighs about 80 pounds. So he's bringing either 80 pounds of gold, which would be the equivalent of $2.5 million in today's standard. Or if you're thinking it's silver, it's roughly $32,000 worth of silver. Either way, it is a buku amount of money. And it's not just money like he's cutting a check. It's weight. It's like, like heavy. 80 pounds is roughly what one bag of sacrete weighs. And if you've lugged a, a bag of sacrete, not the little 40-pound bags, the 80-pound bags, you know what I'm talking about. That is a lot of weight. So to one servant, five of those 400 pounds of gold or silver that's a lot of money that's a lot of weight so he knows his people and he gives them according to their ability so their response is beautiful so here's the other part of this then he goes away he doesn't say I'm going to come back in a week he doesn't say I'll see you in two months he simply goes away now, why does he do that? Well, he's the king. He can do what he wants. He's not subject to them. He's subject to himself. So he goes away. And what's beautiful is the individuals who receive five talents and two talents, you don't see them sort of going over in a corner and they're like, man, I wish I had gotten five talents or, I'm so much better than you. You got two talents, and I got five. There's none of this. There's none of this sort of like, we are in competition with one another. They basically receive it, at least the first two servants, and they immediately go. So what's interesting is you look at the language here. This is beautiful because it tracks both the, the, the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant, he who had received at once went, traded, and made. It's all this active language. 
Not sitting there saying, hmm, what am I going to do with this? Put it immediately into active work. That's for both the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant. It's important, I think, for us at this point to take a look and see what that third servant does. And we'll get to him. He doesn't do that. And we'll, we'll flesh that out a little bit more. So, he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Digging in the ground is not easy work. Digging in the ground takes effort. And if you've ever dug any kind of fence posts in this area, you know you need a digging bar, and it's effort, and it's a lot of work to dig. You gotta haul the dirt out, and then you gotta haul the dirt back in. And all he does is he just goes down and digs, and then he just covers that right back up. So in the five-town servant, I'll call them the good servants, if you will, there's this active taking it out, putting it back in, investing, watching, trading, watching it grow. And with that one-talent servant, there's effort, absolutely. He did not sit idle, but he dug a hole, buried it, covered it up, and walks away. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Again, the king comes back on his time. And when he comes back, that settling of accounts, this was not done collectively. This was an individualized settling. Each of the servants goes before him individually. When we hear that term, day of the Lord, it talks a lot about accounting. It's a judgment. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So, there's this accounting that's taking place. And he who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This, I think, is the best words that a faithful employee can receive from their boss. But it's more than that. This isn't just a talk about employment. This is a talk about your heart. So if we think of what the master has done as just trying to hedge his bets and make some more money, it's kind of a, almost like a prosperity gospel kind of talk. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is an invitation for... Trust, fellowship, and ultimately, relationship. That five-talent servant knew his master, knew his master's heart, and knew what would please his master. And he did not approach this task as a slave. 
He approached this task as someone who desired to honor, to please, to bring pleasure to his king. And when he did that, when he embodied the ethic of his king, his king says, you get it. You understand me. And I love you for it. And he says, come. Come into the joy of my presence. Come into the joy of fellowship with me. That's the ultimate reward. We get to be in the presence as we represent him. We get to be in his presence. That's the delight. That's the joy. The two-talent servant, same thing. He doesn't say to the two-talent servant, how come you didn't make five extra like, you know, the other guy? He rewards him because he gets it too. He recognizes and sees. He knows his ability, right? He gave him two talents to begin with. And so he says to him, well done as well. You have embodied my ethic. You've embodied my image. And you've been faithful. Now, that brings us to the most interesting servant in the lot, right? He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, listen to this, okay? There's an accounting going on. And when you're doing an accounting, the one who's being accounted, it's usually a good idea, like what Zephaniah says, be silent. So this servant believes that he's on an equal footing with the king and he's going to hold him to account. It's like when I have a client who says, I need to say this to the judge right now. And I turn and say, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't, really. But if you want to, you can. So, master, listen to these words. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. Wow. So he just gave him, if you're conservative, $32,000 worth of silver, $2.5 million worth of gold. And he's calling him a cheapskate? So what does fear do to us? Fear blinds us. Fear lies to us. Fear breeds mistrust and distrust. This servant, his heart is not aligned with the king. His agenda is not the king's agenda. He is not embodying the king's ethic. He is embodying an ethic of grasping of 
protecting, of hoarding, of defense. His posture is closed. He is closed to the love of the master. And as a result, he is unable, unable, incapable of responding with love. C.S. Lewis talks about in The Four Loves that if you reject love, you, you basically become like a hard nut that's impenetrable. Your heart cannot receive love. And if you can't receive the Father's love, you don't have the capacity to love. In the same way, if you have a heart that's open and inclined to God's love, you have the capacity to show love. To the extent that God is able to knead your heart like dough or malleable clay, that's the extent to which you can then respond in love. Not with lies, with love. So I was afraid. He's already getting defensive. He knows. He's seeing now, right? He's seeing what's happened with these two other guys. He cuts himself off from fellowship. He cuts himself off from relationship. He isolates himself. And he also isolated himself from the other two servants, the faithful servants. It's not like he... he, he watched them doing what they were doing and said, you know what, maybe I can maybe get some pointers from these guys. He doesn't even do that. And then here's the words. Here are the words of judgment. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. That word slothful has also been uh, interpreted as uh, timid or fearful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Let's just think about that for a minute. Remember where all this money came from to begin with? It was from the king's coffers. It was from the king's own personal holdings. And if you take the view that Jesus is the king, he created everything. He's God. Everything is his. He believed lies, that third servant did. At a minimum, you ought to have taken that money and at least given it to the bankers so it could at least receive interest. He didn't even do that. He literally buried his talent. And the thing is, you know, he described as being slothful or afraid you know, what is it that fear keeps you from doing? What is it that God has laid on your heart that for whatever reason, you just don't want to go there? What's that thing, that insecurity that is holding you back? So I was going to open this talk with the question, what do you really think about Jesus? Is he even a factor in your life? 
do you care what he desires? Do you want to know him better? Is he just a part of a book that's really not terribly meaningful? Or is he the king of your life and king of the universe who by very nature demands your submission to him? The word I want to use is obeisance. It's when you basically get down on your face in front of him. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A word about the day of judgment. It's replete in these stories that we've been reading. Zephaniah was a roughly 600-ish B.C. prophet who was from the line of the king Hezekiah. And he basically says, as you read that passage, those of you who have this view of God that he's not going to do anything, doesn't really care, woe unto you. He does care. There's consolation, though. There's consolation if we look at Paul in his passage to the Thessalonians. He basically says to the church of Thessalonica, you don't have to worry about this because it's Christ who secured your salvation. But he still does call them to faithful service. So as Christians, we can live with fear. But we can treat that fear in an unholy way. We can give fear more priority than it needs to. We can listen to the sirens of the world who are telling us the world is ending and that this election is the most important election of all times for all eternity. But the thing is, I heard that same cry the last election. So I've become to mistrust that. So either God is king and he is the sovereign of your life and you grant him the authority that is his due or you don't. And he's irrelevant and you just live as you desi desire to live. I will say this, you've been called into his service. He's called you. He's called you out. And when you believe in the kingship of Jesus, that cannot but change your heart and take that heart of clay, that heart of stone, and turn it into a soft, palpable thing that can receive love so that you can then give love. That's it. That's the, the nutshell of it. We are called to be Christ until he returns.
that is your task. Faithfully execute that. Amen.